Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Mark Zuckerberg published an opinion letter this weekend in newspapers around the world. The head of Facebook is calling for all kinds of regulation, not exactly what tech gurus have advocated in the past. But big social media firms are realizing the era of total internet freedom is behind them. And the pop music industry in South Korea is built on squeaky clean, wholesome stars singing about unchallenging stuff. But a dark underbelly of K-pop has been revealed as the country reckons with its own Me Too moment. First up, though. Today, the city of Chicago will vote for a new mayor. Now, whatever happens on April 2nd, we're going to make history. Two African-American women, one The runoff pits Lori Lightfoot, a lawyer, against veteran politician Tony Preckwinkle. Either way, Chicago will become the largest American city run by an African-American woman. And there could be some other history in the making. Lori Lightfoot is a lesbian. She said at a public dinner lately that her career would have been impossible when she first came to the city. Right? Think about where we were then and where we are now. I'm an out lesbian, married, with a child, running in the city, the first to ever make the ballot um, of, of, from the LGBTQ community, not even remotely possible, certainly back in those days, but even, frankly, it wouldn't have been too long ago that it wouldn't have been possible. So I think that Her candidacy comes at a key moment for gay, bisexual, and transgender politicians in America. In last year's midterm elections, gay rights groups celebrated the election of a record number of candidates from minority sexuality and gender identity groups. Colorado's governor is a gay man, and Oregon's a bisexual woman. And there's another high-profile out mayor in the Midwest. I'm Pete Buttigieg. I'm the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. When I arrived in office, He announced his run to be the Democratic nominee for president with a video, including a shot of him snuggled on a sofa with his dog and his husband. You know, I belong to a generation that is stepping forward right now. We're the, the couple live-streamed their wedding last year. My sisters and brothers in Christ, the peace of the Lord be always with you. Well, I think the way the uh, American voters are seeing gay and transgender politicians has transformed quite dramatically and quite quickly in the the last decade or two, uh, we've seen a really dramatic change. Adam Roberts is The Economist's Midwest correspondent. He's been on the campaign trail with both Mr. Buttigieg and Mrs. Lightfoot recently. Even on the left of American politics, you have politicians, Democrats, who have shifted to be far more relaxed, far more at ease with, with gay politicians than they were in the past. So we heard first there from uh, Mrs. Lightfoot, who's a candidate um, in the election today. What did she tell you about voters' attitudes to her sexuality? So when I went out with, with Laurie Lightfoot on her campaign trail a little while ago, she was campaigning in a part of Chicago that is perhaps the most liberal and progressive part of the city. And she spoke about being an openly gay candidate. She spoke about the fact that her opponent had appeared to criticise that and, and use sort of dog-whistle politics against her to try and get some of the voters to, to turn against her because she is openly lesbian. And she argued that this would be a problem for her opponent, that in this day and age voters 
would rather shrug at the fact that someone has a different orientation. Uh, the reality is that, especially in a city like Chicago, uh, Laurie Lightfoot can use the fact that she's open about her sexuality as proof that she's authentic and that she's honest about who she is, uh, and voters like that. And and that chimes with what, what you saw when you met Mr. Buttigieg? Yeah, so going to South Bend, which is a smallish city in Indiana, and you might expect in a very Catholic state where Republicans generally are quite strong, that it would be a problem for, for Mayor Pete to, to be openly gay. But in fact, his constituents and everyone he meets, he says, uh, are keen to show that they're relaxed about it. And he's approached by people in the city who, they may be a bit clumsy about it, but generally they're well-meaning and they want to come up to him and tell him that they're very relaxed with the fact that he's gay. And so he sees this as a massive change from, and he's only 37, but he sees a massive change from when he was young and, and people were far more repressed about this sort of thing. So what do you think is, is behind this, Adam, this surge in gay and transgender candidates? Is it just gradual social change? Uh, is, is it some sort of perhaps backlash against the, the Trump administration? I think it's a combination of the two, but the, by far the more important factor is the long-term change. If you look across America, you see opinion polls showing that people, especially young Americans, millennials, are much more at ease with ideas such as gay marriage or having a gay school teacher or a gay doctor. So I think if we look back over 10 or 15 years even, you can see that when Barack Obama was campaigning to be a state senator in, in Illinois, he was a much more hesitant candidate talking about these issues than when he became president. And by the time he left his, his, his office as president, he was in favour of gay marriage. So you see the transition through politicians very, very clearly. Absolutely, but some of these candidates are kind of explicit about campaigning on civil rights for their communities, uh, gay or transgender communities, for example, and still want to be, you know, taken at face value on all of the other issues. How do you think these candidates sort of strike a balance between representing their own communities but also tackling all of the relevant political bits? Well, when I sat down with Mayor Pete a little while ago and, and talked to him about that, he had this clear answer, which is that you have to distinguish between the message and the messenger. And so as a messenger, as a gay man, he thinks that being out and being authentic about it helps to win him some attention. It'll mean that he gets noticed in this very large field of, of democratic contenders and perhaps progressives will pay more attention to him because he's out and, and open about it. But fairly quickly, the messenger has to give way to the message. And the message that he has the most to say about, the things he really wants to talk about, are about revival of Midwestern towns, they're about economic change, they're about economic justice, whether we need some minimum income for poor people. So he isn't making gay rights a big issue that he's campaigning on, he's just letting this be part of his profile. It's a similar approach that Laurie Lightfoot has here in Chicago, and much the same for the governors of Colorado and Oregon. They're open about their uh, identity, but they don't want to be seen as somehow representing only a small minority of voters. They want to represent as many of their constituents as possible. And so they talk mostly about economic, social and other issues and not about gay rights. So if, if these attitudes then are, uh, are changing, are becoming more progressive, you would, you would expect that the number of, for example, gay or, or trans elected officials to sort of match up with the, the demographic in the country at large. Is, are we close? 
So when I was talking recently to Anise Parker, who is the head of the Victory Fund and formerly the mayor of, of Houston, she talks about great progress that's been made, the fact that there are some 700 elected officials across America who are out, the fact that there are people in Congress, these governors and so on. But she also points out that in Ann Arbor in Michigan, 45 years ago today, by coincidence, uh, a woman called Kathy Kosachenko was elected to the city council. And she was the very first American to run on the ticket as an openly gay candidate. And she succeeded and is now being celebrated for this historic milestone. But Mayor Parker, Anise Parker, points out that 45 years is a long time and she would love to have seen more progress by now and that if roughly 5% of the American population perhaps is gay or lesbian or, or has a minority sexual orientation, the actual proportion of people in office is less than 1%. So if you want some sort of parity, we've got a long way to go yet. Adam, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I think that the things in his op ed make sense. Hal Hodson is our technology correspondent. He's been reporting on an opinion piece published this weekend and written by Mark Zuckerberg, the co-founder and CEO of Facebook, called Four Ideas to Regulate the Internet. They're all sensible things. They're also things that governments and people who think about these problems have been saying for a long time. And in a lot of cases, they're things that Facebook has been lobbying against and is still lobbying against directly. So you've got to start with a good dose of skepticism about Zuckerberg's motives on why he's saying this. The most straightforward read is that he's trying to get ahead of the game. And what's he calling for exactly? Zuckerberg is calling for new regulation in four areas. One is harmful content. This means things like the recent uh, massacre in New Zealand and videos of that appearing on the platform. The second thing is election integrity, which means Russians placing ads during American elections is the big one that probably everybody's heard of. The third thing is privacy, which is a very general thing. You could break that down in lots of different ways. And the fourth one is data portability, which is the idea that you can plug your Facebook data into competing services, which is something that currently you can't really do. You say that this op-ed is arguing for quite a few things that the company as a whole is uh, in various ways arguing against. I mean, how does that work? Right. So they are lobbying against various rules, particularly in Europe, that do a lot of the things Zuckerberg is already talking about. But Facebook is not a kind of cohesive whole unit organization. Zuckerberg is certainly in charge, but there are, you know, the different teams within it operate with some autonomy. I was recently in Facebook for meetings with two teams. One is the team which is trying to build a governance scheme around how researchers access the data on the platform in order to understand how Facebook works. And this is important because the whole scandal around Cambridge Analytica went through a one of these researchers in Cambridge, Alexander Kogan. And as a response to that, they're trying to write down rules for who and how should have access to Facebook data in order to understand what's going on in the platform. 
The second thing they're already doing, which I talked to them about, is they're setting up what Zuckerberg calls the sort of supreme court for content. And uh, the ultimate idea is that instead of Facebook and particularly Zuckerberg being the person who is seen as making the decisions about what kind of content is allowable on the platform, this body, this arm's length body, the, the Supreme Court in inverted commas, would take that role and it would start to become the content governance system which feeds into Facebook and, and, and kind of takes the responsibility out of Facebook's hands. But this looks a little bit at odds with what Mr. Zuckerberg is explicitly calling for. He is essentially asking governments to help with the regulation. He is calling for harmonized definitions of data portability, of privacy, of harmful content and so on. I mean, how do you expect that these sort of two different visions will be resolved? Or is all of this just sounding like hitting the right notes from Mark Zuckerberg? It's definitely about hitting the right notes for Mark Zuckerberg. And I, you know, I, I think a lot of it is about making the right noises, trying to make governments feel more comfortable with Facebook, trying to keep everything on the rails. That's, that's maybe priority number one. But there's definitely a tension in the fact that projects are already underway, governments are already regulating, lawsuits are already in motion against Facebook for all of these things. And I actually don't know how to square the circle. I, I, don't, I don't know what Zuck's ultimate plan is. My suspicion is that he's trying to step away from the nitty-gritty detail, the things that are going on day to day and say, this is what I want and what I think. And if you give him the benefit of the doubt, then this is a good thing. You know, for me, it's fair to say or it's fair to expect that a huge company like Facebook with tens of thousands of employees, mostly in California but all over the world, would take a while to steer the ship. And unless you want to burn Facebook to the ground, which frankly a lot of people do, a lot of sort of anti-Facebook activists and rhetorists, they want to just have Facebook go away. They want it to be done. I don't feel like that. I, th I think Facebook does have a reasonable, valuable, useful purpose in the world. And I do think that people should consider giving Zuckerberg and Facebook time to change, even though it seems cynical and e even though we should be skeptical. So what do you think happens now, now that Facebook has had its notional change of heart? Yeah, so I, I think that the big tech companies don't care about what Zuckerberg has said. Like, they're, they're paying attention to regulators and governments who have been saying this stuff already for several years. Zuckerberg's statement matters for Facebook. But th I think the core takeaway is that apps and web pages and the internet – they're real tangible things. There, there's been this temptation to consider them as sort of somewhere else, some other space, something that's not connected to the rest of the world. And increasingly, we're learning that that's not true. These are social problems. They're political problems. They really impact people's lives. They're real issues. And so we have to stop thinking about the internet as a faraway, weird place where crazy stuff happens and start thinking about it like we think about the shipping industry or anything else that is an important part of the way that humans live on Earth. And the upside to that is that maybe we can start to be more comfortable with what happens on the internet and we can feel like we have a voice. We, I'm using the word we, but people in general can start to feel like the internet works for them. The downside is that maybe the sort of golden age of Silicon Valley innovation where anyone can spin up an app and, you know, innovation is going full throttle, that might take a hit. And if that's the end compromise, you know, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world. Hal, thanks very much. Cheers, Jason. In South Korea's capital, there's a nightclub that doesn't look at all like it used to. But what's changing goes far beyond the country's club scene. 
the Burning Sun nightclub, when it was still open, was owned or partly managed by um, a guy called Lee Sung Yun, who is better known as Sing Lee. Lena Shipper is our sole bureau chief. Um, and was a big K-pop star. He was the youngest member of Big Bang, which is one of sort of mainstays of K-pop. He really liked to party, he really liked to flaunt his wealth. He used to organise parties for hundreds of people and that lasted for three days, that, that sort of guy. Last month, it closed. And the reason it closed was that police were going after Sing Lee and his business associates for a large number of offences and more keep coming out of every day related to drugs, related to tax evasion, related to um, illegal prostitution. So the whole place got raided and then shut down. But Korean pop music, K-pop music, is really squeaky clean. Super airbrushed, uh, you know, wholesome family fun. Yeah, that's the that's the image it's projecting, I think. So this kind of thing is really not supposed to happen. It's not that it hasn't happened before. This isn't the first time there's a big scandal in K-pop. There's you know, been been various bubbles of people complaining about how they're treated. It's a very punishing industry in some ways. There's there's ways that stars are treated while they're still being trained. But this sort of sprawling scandal is is really very bad for the image that K-pop usually tries to sell. Well, you say sprawling scandal. Where, where, where else is this coming up? So the Burning Sun nightclub set it off in a way. That was the starting point. And since then, there have been lots and lots of new revelations um, involving not just Sing Lee, but other K-pop stars. Um, a Korean broadcaster published these chats where, um, among other people, Jung Jun Young, who's a pretty famous singer and songwriter and radio host or was a radio host until all of this happened. And some friends, uh, sh- they share videos of women that were clearly taken without the women's consent. They joke about raping women, drugging women. It's generally all pretty nasty stuff. And Jung Jun Young since then has been arrested for um, illegally distributing videos of women that, are, that were taken without the woman knowing and clearly without the woman wanting it. How common is this spy cam stuff in South Korea? It's a pretty common thing. So um, this K-pop scandal isn't the first time that um, spy cam videos have played a role in Korea. I mean, the most in the most recent case, two men were arrested for installing cameras in motel rooms all over the country, and about 1,600 people found out they'd secretly been filmed uh, without their consent while staying in those motels, having no idea that they were bugged with cameras. You know, women have gone into police stations and said, my boyfriend filmed me and I only just found out this is video of me on the internet. That's a that's a pretty common thing here. So is it fair to say then that this K-pop scandal has kind of fed the fire of a, an already existing wider movement? Yeah, so I think it's definitely in the process of reviving a women's movement that garnered force last year in response to uh, other spy cam cases that emerged. And there's a very general sense among women in South Korea, I think they're just fed up with finding out that yet another group of men has, well, turned out to be sexist bastards, essentially. I mean, the Minister for Gender Equality and Family, Jin Sun-mi, went on record last week and reminded men to to stop objectifying women. She, I think she literally said, um, women are humans with souls. Um, and the fact that she felt the need to say that tells you quite a lot. So d- does this bode ill for the, the K-pop industry more generally? Does it d- does that make it a focus? I wouldn't say the industry as a whole is at risk from it. That that would be going a bit too far. But it's it's 
clearly ta- it's certainly taken a beating already. I mean, the shares of uh, the K-pop label that used to have Signy on its books um, have collapsed since this all emerged, um, which suggests that at least in K-pop, not all publicity is good publicity because it's drawing attention to an aspect of it that people don't really want to hear about. Lena, thanks for your time. Good to be with you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow.